0: I'm going to continue reading God's Word from the book of Genesis. Last week I, I got some of these Bible Society um, versions of the book of Genesis. It's in um, the story of Joseph it focuses on. Um, So I'm going to be reading from that just now, which is slightly different from the words that may be on the screen, but not very different. If you got one of these last week, that's great. You can follow along with it. If you didn't get one, you'll find the same story in your Bible, the book of Genesis. Um, They're also available. You can order them from the Bible Society directly. We'll send out the the link on the email. I think it went out already. Um, And we might get some more if, if, if you want to get them here, but you can pick these up as you want it. It's the New International Reader's Version, and I'm going to read Genesis 15 just now. Sometime later, Abram had a vision. The Lord said to him, Abram, do not be afraid. I am like a shield to you. I am your very great reward. But Abram said, Lord and King, what can you give me? I still don't have any children. My servant Eliezer comes from Damascus. When I die, he will get everything I own. Abram continued, you haven't given me any children. So this servant of mine will get everything I own. Then a message from the Lord came to Abram. The Lord said, when you die, what you have will not go to this man. You will have a son of your own. He will get everything you have. The Lord took Abram outside and said, Look up at the sky. Count the stars if you can. Then he said to him, This is how many children will be born into your family. Abram believed the Lord the Lord was pleased with Abram because he believed. So Abram's faith made him right with the Lord. He also said to Abram, I am the Lord. I brought you out of Ur in the land of Babylon. I will give this land to have as your very own. But Abraham said, Lord and King, how can I know that I will have this land as my own? So the Lord said to him, bring me a young cow, a goat and a ram. Each must be three years old. Bring a dove and a young pigeon along with them. Abram brought all of them to the Lord. Abram cut them in two and placed the halves opposite each other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. The large birds came down to eat the dead bodies of the animals and the birds. But Abram chased the large birds away. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep. A thick and frightening darkness covered him. Then the Lord said to him, You can be sure of what I am about to tell you. For 400 years, your family who comes after you will be strangers in another country. They will become slaves there and will be treated badly. But I will punish the nations that makes them slaves. After that they will leave with many possessions. But you will die in peace. You will join the members of your family who have already died. And you will be buried. where you are very, When you are very old. Your children's grandchildren will come back here. That's because the sin of the Amorites. Has not yet reached the point where I must punish them. The sun set. And it became dark. Then a burning torch and a pot filled with smoking coals appeared. They passed between the pieces of the animals that had been cut in two. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He said, I am giving this land to your family who comes after you. It reaches from the river of Egypt to the great Euphrates. It includes the lands of the Kenites, kesedites Cadmonites, Kad- Hittites. Perizzites and R- Raphaelites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Gingishites, and Jebusites also live there. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. I was merciful. I was going to get someone to read that this morning for me. <laughs> and then we're going to read from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4, and I'm going to read just the first Four verses, and then four verses later on. What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, as the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Then we pick it up at verse 20. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise, that's Abraham, of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it says he was credited, it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in Him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, He was delivered over to death for our sins, and was raised to life for our justification. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. Got to have the screen come. Let's pray, Father. We come to Your Word this morning. This story of Abram from so many years before, but given to us who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray as 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 we look to you, the God and Father of Abraham, that you would teach us to trust you now. Amen. You know, one of the things that life takes us to again and again is disappointment, isn't it? I almost don't need to, to say more than that because we all know what disappointment is. From the little disappointments of a, a postponed birthday party, or that thing that we bought that we thought looked great when we saw the advert, but when we actually got it, it wasn't as great as we'd hoped. You know those feelings of disappointment. And then there are the large things, the dashed dreams. The life that we thought we'd had that didn't quite work out then. The things we hoped to achieve that didn't ever happen. The people who we thought would be there, but they let us down. The career hopes and the aspirations. There's that expression, it's often used in Scottish rugby, isn't it? It's the hope that kills you. The disappointment. And we can laugh and smile when we're talking about the six nations, although some people take that very seriously, I know. But um, it points to something deeper. That deep sense of disappointment that many of us know that often brings tears of bitterness. Not so much for what is lost, but for what we never got that we'd hoped for. Abram is described in the bible by paul as the father of all who believe He is the first one that god gives to a great promise and a great promise that will ripple down through scripture from the beginning of genesis chapter 12 right to the end of the book as god promises to abram and promises to his people what he's going to do chapter 12 God says to Abraham in these amazing words of promise, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will give you a land and a hope and a purpose, a purpose that will bless all nations. And I will curse those that curse you and bless those that bless you. And all people will be blessed through you. It is an amazing promise that Abraham is given in chapter 12. And it's a promise given to someone who might otherwise have had little hope in life. By this stage, he's an old man. He's 75. His life seems behind him, the future. And his wife has no children. He has no children. He doesn't seem to have a legacy, a future, a hope. And he's given this amazing promise. But here's the thing, and this is one of the reasons why it's, it's good if you can read Genesis, read the whole story, because it's not just sometimes about this verse or that verse, it's about getting the sense of the story it goes on. Because he's given this promise in chapter 12, and when we come to chapter 15, what's he got to show for it? Nada. Nothing. In fact, he will go on having nothing for another six chapters, another 20-odd years of his life, where nothing will seem to happen. There is, in the story that we are given, frustration and disappointment. There is an intense sense of him wrestling to believe this promise, this hope, when everything around him seems to say the opposite. It seems to be more and more impossible. There is no child. And as for the land... He's certainly not got any of that. He's wandering around in the land by this stage. He's traveled to the land that God told him to travel. But the land is full of other people. How is he going to have this land when it's full of other people? And in fact, he has to leave it to find food. He has to go down into Egypt. And the story will go on like this, not just in the story until he has a child, but actually beyond that, when Abraham comes into his very old age in his last days and his wife dies... He doesn't even own enough land to bury her. He has to borrow some. In his lifetime, nothing seems to be fulfilled. And the children he leaves, there'll be nomads in Canaan for generations until they go down with Joseph into Egypt and become slaves. And it will be 400 years before the children of Israel own any land at all. They will live on other people's land until then. And yet, this promise that Abram is struggling with and wrestling with and doesn't seem to be met is a huge promise because it's not just that Abram is given this sense of you'll have a purpose. Actually, this is the purpose. This is the only purpose. This is the purpose of all purposes. This is God trying to sort out or planning to sort out, going to sort out what is broken about the whole of the world. This is his method to bring about a healing of everything that went wrong in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 when the world was broken by sin the redemption of all nations, the blessing through Abraham that only later on do God's people find out is brought in the child, the son, the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham, Jesus Christ, in whom God blesses all the nations and brings all the nations into that place of blessing that is ours too. And so one sense, Abraham's hope and promise is ours. But in another sense, his disappointment and frustration is also ours. Chapter 15, God comes to Abram and he says simply, Do not be afraid. You know, I, I love that. I've, I've said this so often. I love the fact that the most common command of Scripture is not thou shalt not or thou shall. It's simply this don't be afraid. Every time God shows up, every time an angel shows up in Scripture, you will find time and time again those words, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. What's Abram afraid of at this point? Well, I think what he's afraid of is this. Here's the fear. His fear is for the future. And we know what that's like. His fear is that the future will not see anything happening. The disappointment will continue. The barrenness will continue. The lack of anything changing will continue. It will just be one damn thing after another. And God comes to Abram and says, I am your shield, Abram. I will protect you and I will keep you safe. And more than that, I'm your portion. I'm your reward. What you've got, Abram, beyond everything else, beyond children, beyond land, beyond everything else is this. You have got me. You've got me. And we have got to go into this together, says God. And we can see Abraham's frustration in what he says next. Abraham, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And all I can do, he says is, well, the only plan I've got, Abraham says, the only solution I can see for my future is, I'll adopt a child, one of my servants. And that quite often happened in the ancient world. If, if someone didn't have children of their own, they, they would adopt a slave or a, a somebody else's child and they would make them their heir. And Abraham says, that's the only thing I can do is you know, you've given me this promise, Lord. I can sort of make it happen, but this is all I can expect. That's it. That's it. Now, by the way, before we're dishing down adoption. When we come to the New Testament, adoption is fantastic. It's God's brilliant plan to adopt us as the children of, of his son. But right here, what Abraham is saying is, I am finding it impossible to believe that anything is going to change other than the stuff that I can do. I don't believe you can do anything, but notice the irony here. What did he start by saying? Sovereign Lord. And that's where we are often, as, as, as people of, of faith in the Lord, that we, we say these things. Sovereign Lord who is almighty. God almighty. God who can do anything. We sing these things, don't we? But I don't really expect anything will change. You know, your word says that you're transformed. I don't, I, I, you know, I'm just who I am. I can't change. I can't do anything. You know, I, it'll just go on as it is. Church, nah, nothing can happen there. Me, nothing can happen there. I'm just who I am. I've got to accept. And that's the modern world. Accept yourself for who you are because you can't change. just have to be who you are. It used to it. Sovereign Lord who can do anything, who has a plan to transform and bless and bring life and renewal. You can see the struggle there, can't you? The sense of what we believe God can do, and yet that deep, deep frustration. The problem here is all Abraham actually believes in, as much as he talks about a sovereign Lord there, all he finds himself able to believe in is the things he can do, he can control. He's sovereign over. He can adopt somebody. And we'll find this as we go through the story. And he's told again and again, you're going to have children. And, and eventually Sarah says, well, I can't have children. That can't happen. What could we do? Well, we could, we could get Hagar pregnant. She could have a child, a surrogate, and we could do all of that. But that's what we can do. The struggle is to believe that God has a different future. And then the word of God comes to him, verse four, and reiterates the promise. This man will not be your heir, but you will have a son of your own flesh and blood. The word of the Lord came to him. Now, this is really quite important because Why do we come to church? Why do we read the scriptures? Why do we sing the hymns? And one of the reasons is because we need to not just believe these things, we need to keep hearing them. To keep hearing the promises of God. To keep hearing the testimony of people who say God has changed my life. To keep hearing and being reminded of what God has done through history and all time in his scripture and in, in the history of the church. Because we need to reorientate ourselves to that reality. Not the reality that we begin to look at and say well this is all that can happen because it's all I can get my head around. But begin to see that what we believe is true of this sovereign God. To begin to see a new Reality that looks at things different, where we begin to see God's purpose for us, God's future for us, begin to see what we are created for. Paul says, We are created for good works. We are created to be changed into the image of His Son. You will not remain as you are. You do not just have to accept that. God wants to transform you. Paul will put it this way to Timothy I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that He is able to do that which He has promised for I have committed to him against that day. So this revelation of God comes and reminds Abraham, and we'll find this time and time again if you read these passages that God keeps coming and reminding Abraham of the promise. Look at the stars, Abraham. See how many offspring you will have. This is the plan. And again, and again, and again, it will be repeated. And again, and again, and again, Abraham will struggle with it, and by the way, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you know exactly what I'm talking about you because you've done the same thing. You have really struggled to believe. By the way, that will be a revelation to some of you. Because you'll think it's just you that struggles with doubt. Hands up, anyone here who never struggles with doubt. Liar. Sorry, <laughs> it's called. Right, but it is a revelation. And that's when we start to share. We we begin to see one another's struggles. That's why in the church we should also be honest. We should give testimony to what God has done in our lives, because that encourages people. We should also be willing to share what's tough and hard and awful at times. The strange thing is that God doesn't turn up and say, Well, Abraham, here's some proof so you'll know what I can do. He doesn't give him a miracle. He doesn't say, look at Sarah's belly, something's wriggling in it. That would be something that would give Abraham something to rely on. No, he comes and says, let me tell you about all the stars of the children you will have. Now here's the thing, Abraham will never see those children. Even when Isaac is born, and he will see his son Isaac born, and maybe we can do the maths on this, he will see His grandchildren, Jacob and and Esau, being born of Isaac. We will not see all these stars. What God is saying is here is the future that you will never see. But that's not the reason you have to believe. You have to trust me that I will do that. And that's what you have to live in. It's the same when we read the book of Revelation and we read to the end and we see how God will heal the heavens and the earth. And bring justice on the earth and bring healing to the environment then we are able to go on even when we don't think we can change anything today or tomorrow because we know and we have seen the vision of what God is going to do and we have trusted him for it. Trust me. You know, it would be easier to believe that God would save the nations if we saw the people flocking into the church and becoming Christians, wouldn't it? It would be easier to believe that our lives could be changed if everything started changing and working right now. But God isn't saying that. He isn't saying, I'll give you proof and you can trust in all those things. He's saying, even in the darkness and the despair, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust that I will do what I have promised. And that means patience. (laughs) Hands up who's got patience. You know, one one of the marks in the modern world is we are always in a hurry, aren't we? We are always in a hurry. God isn't in a hurry. Genesis is a story of generations, generation after generation after generation, lifetime after lifetime, decade after decade. God working His plan out, right through the whole of history, and we want it tomorrow. We have such short attention spans, and they are getting shorter. I, I, I was in a in a discussion today, and it's should get shorter because people's attention spans are getting shorter as if we have less to say as if truth suddenly can contract until it can fit into a soundbite that we can we can deliver and move on your wealth has made things very difficult for modern people to believe but i think the other thing that's made it difficult is our impatience our sense of the instantaneous, our hyperactivity, our measuring of things in nanoseconds, our complaint that our phone needs to be replaced because it's not quite as fast as the one that we can get in the Model 2. Patience. You know, God, Maya said to Abraham, I, and this is me adding to what the Bible says, is the those stars, the closest one of them, the light you're seeing is four years old. You know, you think I just put those lights on tonight to let you see, Abram, but I actually set that moving four years ago and the one that's furthest away that you can see is sending its light 2,000 years before. Look at the nebulous and see the sense of time and space that I'm operating over and learn what it is to have patience. Second Peter 3 and 6 and 9 talks about this. Sorry, i um, Says uh, that with the Lord... A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. And the context of, that, of Peter saying that is people who were waiting on God returning, and life was tough, and they wondered where he was. And this was only a few decades after the Lord had been here. Here we are 2,000 years later, bow. Churches had to learn patience. A day is like a thousand years. The story is told of um, the... Wee boy who says to the Lord, Lord, if 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 a day is like a thousand years to you, does that mean a penny is like a thousand pounds? And the Lord says, Well, yeah, I suppose so. And the wee boy says, Can I have one of your pennies? And the Lord says, Yep, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> Patience. God is not in a hurry. Prayer is learning to be patient before God. We shall wait upon the Lord, and those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, and they shall rise on wings like eagles. It doesn't say when. And then verse 6 says, in, in words that Paul picks up in Romans, it says simply this, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. What does this mean? Well, it's quite difficult to understand, but really, It's saying this, Abraham believed the Lord. He allowed himself to be reorientated to the promise. Life was not just about what he could see and what he could do and what he could achieve. It was about the sovereign Lord and what he could do. Life was not just about the fact that nothing had changed. It was about the fact that in God, everything would change in God's time. And Paul picks up on this as well. You might not understand, and he's talking about Jesus, what he's done. But it's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. And all you need to have is faith. In what God has done. Paul's talking about what God has done for our salvation in Jesus. For Abraham, it's, it's a smaller thing. It's about what God has promised to do for his own people in blessing. But it's the same principle. And as God sees that faith, he credits it to him as righteousness. And it's quite hard to understand what that means. But it means something like this. God looks at Abraham as if everything he had done was right. Now, Abraham has not done everything right. We, we, we've already heard how he went down to Egypt and told Pharaoh, his, Sarah was his wife, to get his, save his own skin and all the rest of it. But God says, What I'm looking for is simply that you trust me. You trust me. You trust me for your salvation. You trust me for your future. And you leave it to me and not about what you do or what you deserve. And that is a righteousness that God sees trusting in the Lord. For us, it's this. As Abraham had to stop trying to do everything himself but trust in God's promise, so we for ourselves need to stop trying to make ourselves right with God. Thinking if we do enough, if we, if we, if we achieve enough, God will be pleased with us. But understanding that he gives his son and as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfection is given to us and we are called simply to surrender To him but it's not just that easy in many ways in the new testament folk will say one one chap will say to jesus lord i believe help my unbelief i'm still struggling with this i trust you but i find myself not trusting you and we find this 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 with abraham as well he he says lord okay i I believe you you're going to give me a child but I'm struggling, Lord. How can I know that I will get this land? How can I know this? And here's what happens, and it's quite amazing. The Lord comes and tells him to take animals, cut them in half, put them by the side of a path. Now, it's a strange ritual, and we don't fully understand it. But what it seems to mean is this that when two people in the ancient world were about to enter into a a contract or a relationship, that there's some evidence that what they did is they cut animals in half uh, and they put them at the side and then the two people would walk between the animals. And it's as if they were saying, as we make this commitment to one another, we do it in blood, and if we break it, may what has happened to these animals happen to us. You know when the children say, cross my heart and hope to die if I tell a lie? It's the same principle. There is a curse. And may that happen to me if I don't follow through in what I am promising. Here is what God says. Break these animals in two and put them by the side of the road. May this be a blood covenant that we will enter into. Where I will promise, cross my heart and hope to die. That I will do this for you. You will not see this happening, Abraham. For 400 years, God goes on to say, your children will be nomads, and then they will be slaves. And only years and years later will this promise come true. But you will know it's true, not because you see some evidence of it, or you're able to achieve a bit of it, or we give you a wee bit of land just now and a wee bit later. You will know it's true because I have completely committed myself to you. Cross my heart and hope to die. That is what is going on here. And this is the concept of the covenant. You know, I I often say this to couples when they're preparing for marriage, that there's a difference between a covenant and, and a contract. Most of our relationships in life are contractual. That is, I do something for you, and you do something for me. I, if I go into the curry shop, it around round the corner. It's great, by the way. Um, I, and he's a nice chap. But the relationship is contractual, listen to it? I give him some money and he gives me a curry. Yeah? And we're both happy. It's great. Good guy. But it is based on that contractual. If he doesn't deliver the curry, I'm not going to give him any more money. And if I don't pay him or my check bounces, not that I use a check, then I'm not going to get any more curry. Right? It's, it's a deal. It's a two-way deal. And actually, quite a lot of our relationships are like that. You, you've got a good friend and you think they're a good friend, but there's something contractual about the, about the relationship because if they stop being nice to you, you say, I don't want anything else to do with them. That's because it's a contractual relationship. They, they're, they're pleasant to you, and they invite you around to their house for coffee, whatever it is, and you're nice to them. and You do stuff for them, but you ex- sort of expect that they'll do stuff for you in return. That's a a contractual relationship. And a lot of relationships are like that. Even romantic relationships can be like that. She makes me feel complete. So as long as she keeps me feeling complete and I feel in love with her and I'm getting some buzz out of it, I'll stick with her. But a covenant is something different. And marriage is a covenant. Christian marriage is a covenant. It is when... Two people enter into a relationship which is not based on what I get. It's interesting in marriage, they both stand up and they both promise to love the other one, but it's not conditional. You don't say, I will love you if you love me. I will stick with you if you stick with me. I will look after you if you look after me. Actually, no, each one independently makes a promise before God. I will love you and there are no conditions. I will be with you even if you disappoint me. That's the ideal of Christian marriage. For better, for poorer, for richer, for poorer, for in sickness and health, till death you do part. I've, I've seen this with my own parents just now. My, my dad is not at all well. He has Alzheimer's. He's not a lot of fun. He can't respond a lot. But I have watched my mother, I should be watching this. <laughs> um, I've watched her serve him when he has nothing to give back. And I've done that and I've marvelled. That is what Christian marriage is. It's not contractual, it's covenantal. And that is what is going on here. Except notice what happens here in this covenant. Because the covenant that God makes with Abraham he promises him a land and a future and a hope and he promises to be there for him it's not that god and abraham walk through these animals and both promise god doesn't ask abraham to walk through the animals because god knows that abraham will break his promises god knows that abraham will cease to trust him god knows that the people who follow abraham will rebel and do everything and and will let him down but god enters into the covenant himself The the, the signs of the Lord are put through this, this broken set of animals. As God promises and commits himself to Abraham 100%. And there is no indication in this that Abraham also walks the other way. God's promise is given to Abraham. As God says, I will take on the curse of the covenant. Cross my heart and hope to die. But here's the thing, when you break it. You will not die, for I will pay the price for you. And of course, we know far more about that in the New Testament. We can see this as a prefiguring of the price that the Lord will pay on the cross. Not to keep up his side of the bargain, because he hasn't broken his promises at all, but to keep our side of the bargain, because we are incapable of seeing this through. And that is the Lord who is the God of the covenant, who takes on all of this for us. It's why also, at the very beginning of this, God had said to Abraham, do not be afraid, I am your shield and I am your great reward. What he's saying to Abraham is this, you have me, I'm your reward. Actually, you don't need all these children. You don't need the land. You don't need the blessings and the stuff I will give you. You just need me. Everything else will follow. And our gospel tells us this at its heart. It doesn't promise us things will be easy. Yes, it tells us there's a future and a hope. But it says that our God is completely committed to us. For he so loved us that he sent his son to fulfill this covenant. To pay the price that we know that our God will go to no length. To secure our future and our hope, and his plan of redemption for the whole world. Amen.